Okay. Which we are. Okay. To life. After the holidays, that we uh, that we 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 touch the 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 Mayan. The Mayan means the the source of life, the the wellspring of life. That's what the month of Tishrei is giving us the opportunity that we engage in the in the source of life the wellspring where it all comes from and uh, that gives us enough um vitality to go through the uh, the winter months coming as uh, as they are right it looks like we had just a week ago it was like 80 degrees and now it's <laughs> getting ready for the winter <laughs> so from all the holidays that we brought joy gladness of heart and touching the source it will serve us uh, as we go forward l'chaim so the the truth is when you think about it um we kind of live in two worlds from you know i must say that the day after the holidays after simchas torah Simcha Torah ended uh, last Wednesday night. Then Thursday, um, it felt like, you know, it had this major drop, like you're on a high. Uh, now, definitely L'chaim helps. <laughs> and lots of uh, good people around you to celebrate. There's no question, right? Joel being, uh, uh, you know, with us and, and many others. Um, but it's like living in two worlds. Like now you're going into a different world. So which world is the real world, you know? Um, and which one do we which one do we need to be in? So of course we need to be in both, right? We need to be in both worlds. We have the holidays, they give us the strength so we can go into uh, the regular routine, the regular world, uh, being out there and and taking of that inspiration and living through those times, and that's uh, you know that's what we have on a weekly basis. Shabbos, you know, Shabbos is that um, oasis, leaving the world that allows us to go back into the world at the, at the same time. So there's also two worlds you could speak about, and that is the world of Torah, which the world of Torah, it's a world of wisdom, ultimately, of course, divine wisdom. Um, but then there's also a world of secular knowledge, also wisdom. And, um, you know, how do those two worlds, do they collide? Do they meet? Is there an interplay um, between the world of what you might call faith or Jewish observance and a world of complete skepticism, right? Um, perhaps. Well, 
at least a world that um, is a scientific world. Yet we see that there are, you know, religious Jews who are scientists. So there must be able to be some kind of interplay between them. They don't have to be necessarily a contradiction. For some, it's a contradiction and a ticket out of Jewish observance. So let's um, dwell into this uh, to this point. Take from this week, this week's parsha, fascinating story: the Tower of Babel. Um, when humanity was created, well, one man, then one woman. So they all started off in one area, one region. And from there, they moved on. They started off with one language. Ultimately, then developed into many languages. So in this week's Parsha, we have that story where the population grew. The people decided to move from one region that where humanity was, traveled east, settled in the valley of Shinar. And they decided to construct a giant mon monument for humanity. Um, let us take a look at this week's Parsha. There we are. Almost going to teach a Rambam, but uh, we already did it, did it today. <laughs> you see it in front of you. So at the end of the of Parsha Zoyach, after the flood, so Torah tells us, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and fire them thoroughly so that the bricks were were to them for stones and the clay was to them for mortar and they and they said come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make ourselves a name lest we be scattered upon the face of the entire earth so what we see over here is humanity is progressing before that um before they had bricks, all they had was wood and stone. And now they were able to make fire up bricks, which is showing us on how humanity was progressing, being productive. However, God didn't appreciate their project and decided instead of a giant monument um, that they wanted to make to be very impressive, that the people... Um, themselves were not so impressive. So the verse continues and says, come, God says, let us descend and confuse their language so that no one will understand the language of his companion. God has scattered them from upon the face of the earth and they ceased building the city. So the, the question is why? They were being very productive. They were advancing. They were... Um, finding new ways to build society. 
What was wrong with the tower at Bavel that it was considered as a bad thing? No, they were only getting together to advance technology. What's wrong with that? So from here, you could get the mistaken notion that God and the Torah is teaching us is anti-science. Well, why else would God stop such progress and disperse the people so they couldn't understand each other and, and, and hence have many languages as, as, a, as a result, uh, they wouldn't be able to understand each other. Why was this necessary? Isn't it a good thing that we have advancement? Does Torah want to limit human achievement? Or is there a deeper story over here? So that's our question that we'll come back to. Hold on to it. Where we need to go now is to understand another idea that is earlier in this Parsha. And that is, of course, the very flood itself. The Zoyer tells us something fascinating. It gives us a um, prophetic vision of something in the future. Of course, it, you know, today we learned Rambam and, and explaining how in the nuanced halacha of Maimonides' teachings, there's such depth in understanding the difference between the male and female uh, relationship and, and concerning marriage and the like. There's so much profundity. So likewise, when it comes to a, to uh, a story in Homish, so we read the story of Noyach, and of course, we understand that you know, there's some history there, and we understand there's lessons in life, but there's also prophetic vision of what will happen in the future. So the Zoyar says the following. In the 6,000th year of the 6th millennium, which means 5,600, or 1840, in the year of the common era, 1840, Isaiah says, the supernal gates of wisdom will be opened. And also the wellsprings of wisdom below. This will prepare the world for the seventh millennium, meaning Mashiach. Like a person who prepares himself for on Friday for Shabbos, as the sun begins to wane, so it will be here. This is alluded to in the verse, the 600th year of Noyach's life. All the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. So the Zoyar, written in the second century of the common era by Reb Shimon Bar Yochai, gives us a very deep and profound idea of a future time in history. When will that be? 1,700 years later, after the Zohar, that the supernal gates of wisdom, what's supernal? Means heavenly wisdom. What's heavenly wisdom? Torah wisdom. And what does it mean? The springs from below, the well springs from below, is also a source of life, is also a source of uh, of teachings, of water. And that is the advances, advances in the material 
mortal wisdom, human wisdom, which you might call the sciences. These two things will at that time make a transform transformational shift. And this is what the Rebbe explains to us. Evidently, the Zohar is referring to the fact that the gates of wisdom in general and the gates of the Torah's wisdom specifically would open up at that time. This did actually, this did actually occur with regard to the worldly wisdom. As for Torah wisdom, we married in that era the revelation of the Torah's inner dimension, a part of Torah that had previously been hidden and concealed. So let's begin with the revelation of wellsprings of wisdom from below. What was the 1840s in that time era was the Industrial Revolution. In other words, till that time, the advances in science, the advances in progress of humanity was a, at a very slow pace until the Industrial Revolution. At that time, it was the beginning of the floodgates opening of human wisdom, human understanding that would gain speedily in the waters from below. It would be gushing and being starting at that time to be revealed. Now, you can see over here, some of the wellsprings from below, battery matches to a mechanical calculator, traffic lights, a steam locomotive, a sewing machine, a glider, a motorcycle, and many other things. Uh, many other things. So this was predicted by the Zohar that this would be the time that the floodgates would start to open up. That means it only starts to open up. It doesn't mean it ends there, right? Remember, the flood was for 40 days. It begins then. So that is waters from the wellsprings from below that are gushing up, which happened by the flood. But there's also waters from above. And that's the supernal gates of wisdom. And what? so what was unique then? Well, that's when we have the Alter Rebbe, Tanya, the Torah or and Lakute Torah that was then brought to the world. So what's interesting is that when we speak about science in the Industrial Revolution or any science of today, we talk about a discovery. In other words, they didn't create anything, nothing new under the sun, but they discovered something that wasn't there before. So discovery starting with Industrial Revolution now started to speed up things in a huge manner until this very day. And just like there is discovery, right, from the wisdom from below, the waters from below that came 
and reveal themselves. So likewise, there's discovery from above. The teachings of Tanya, the Alter Rebbe, the Baal Shem Tov, and, and so on, these were revealing new dimensions into our wisdom. People ask, why wasn't these teachings there before? Well, it's because the divine wisdom has to be revealed, as the Zohar says, at that particular time, bringing new wisdom into the world, discovering it, again, not creating it, because it's all based on Torah, and bringing this new teachings that were always there. The few always learned it. The Zohar, the Arizal's teachings, but they were not taught to the masses. There wasn't a floodgate of wisdom. Starting with the Alter Rebbe, with Tanya, leading into his teachings of Torah or in the Kuti Torah, they became revealed to the masses as Tanya became more revealed to the masses at that time than ever before. So we have two major shifts, one spiritual and the other material in the physical world. What's the connection between the two? The Zohar is implying that there's some kind of link between them because the waters come and merge together that ultimately will bring a preparation of the world to the ultimate days of Shabbos, the seventh millennium of Mashiach. But just like it seems like they are two different worlds, but in fact, just like we celebrated the holidays, the month of Tishrei, and now we go into Mar Cheshven, into the month of without holidays, we go into the mundane world. So just as those need to be fused together, it seems that the Zohar is telling us that these two need to be linked and fused together. So how do we understand that? How do we do that? We can understand that we keep Shabbos for the day itself and for the invigoration that it gives us for us to go into six days of mundane engagement. But why would we link that up with Torah and science? Why would we say that, you know, the Torah wisdom from above is meets together with the human wisdom from below? Why is that a necessary link? We need to understand. Is that clear? Great. So before we answer this, let, let, let's back up even for a moment. You know, we want to make certain that we understand that even though the two are different worlds, you know, many people have the notion that Torah and science are the antithesis of each other. Maybe not as much today, but definitely, you know, 30 or 30 years ago, 50 years ago, a uh, hundred years ago, absolutely, that was the notion. But let's step back and really understand that 
probably the reason why we think this, you know why? Because we live in Western culture. And Western culture, how do we understand things? We don't understand it with a Torah mind. We understand it with Western culture's mind, which is a Christian perspective. And people speak about Judeo-Christian, but that's a misnomer. That's a misnomer because it's the Christian that took from Judaism, but mm, not exactly. Let me explain. What is the center core value of Christianity? One word. Come on. Love. No. No. Jesus. Okay. Another word. Christ. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the element of it, but what is the, the function that you need? Come on. Belief. To believe in him. That's it. Simple. Right? That's the core. Believe. Belief. Right? Ultimately, that's... If you believe, then what will happen? You'll be saved. If you're a non-believer, you're going to... You understand, right? What's the core of Judaism? Well, actually, before that, sorry. Now, if the core of Christianity is faith, what's the core of science? The opposite of faith, right? It's academic. It is engagement. It is questioning. It's not faith, not taking anything on faith. So by nature, religion and academia or slash science are at odds with each other by nature. Now, everybody thought that that was also with Judaism because, you know, after all, we are also, you know, have faith, right? And we also believe that's true. But Judaism, by definition, is the essence of it is not faith. There's a chassid of, um, of the, of the Tzemach Tzedek. was the grandson of the Alter Rebbe, who was the Rebbe in, in 1840 of he said, and the Chassid said to him, I'm having some questions of faith. So, um, that Timur says, so, what's the problem? He says, Rebbe, but I'm a Jew. So if that's the case, it's okay. In other words, of course, faith and belief in God is a core of Judaism. I mean, after all, you know, before Judaism, there was paganism. We brought that to the world, obviously. That's not the core of Judaism. Judaism, by definition, what is it? It's about practice, right? It's about mitzvahs, doing the mitzvahs, right? And where do we do the mitzvahs? We don't go on top of a Tibetan mountain to do mitzvahs. We live a normal, regular life in a mundane society 
and we do it, right? So the Jewish approach cannot reject science, which science is the observation of a natural phenomena because Judaism is not, even though we have faith, right? But is really a, 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 a um, living in, in a world, a natural world where we have to guide ourselves to do the traditions, we have to the practices of living a Jewish life. So as uh, Rabbi Norman Lamb explains, Tertullian said that, what was Athens to do with Jerusalem? What agreement is there between the academy and church? For this Latin church father, the gulf between them was unbridgeable. This assertion is one is of one piece with his famous statement, credo qual absurdism, I don't know, that he believed because it was absurd. Such an anti-rationalism never found a warm hospital reception with classical Jewish thinkers. Why? Because Judaism involved practice taking place within a mundane reality. The Jewish people cannot reject science as a result of that. And as we see within Jewish thinkers, you have uh, Shmuel Hanagi, the Maimonides, the Eben Ezra, Barbanel, the Rachmal, the Rebbe, El Negom, the Alter Rebbe, the Rebbe. They were all very learned in scientific knowledge. So we can take it even a step further. It's not that just that Torah is okay with science in maybe some ambivalent manner. The truth is, if you think about it, science and inventions would not be possible without the Torah and Jewish belief. Think about it. What was before Judaism came on the, on the picture? It was only paganism. What's paganism? Paganism is that there's many gods. And these gods are warring between each other. And they're fickled. And they're unpredictable. Feuds between them. So there is no design, there's no purpose, there's no order, everything is chaos. Comes Judaism and says there's just one God, there's intelligent design by this single creator. Well, if there is intelligence design, then it would follow that you can find in a single theory, uh, the uh, belief system of oneness, that you can now make scientific inquiry to find and discover more scientific truth. As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, the account of creation in the first chapter of Genesis is stunningly original, quite unlike any other in antiquity. There were no contending forces, no battles of the gods, no capricious spirits. God speaks and the universe comes into being. God is not in nature, but above it, transcending it and ordering it according to his word. Nature has no will or set of wheels of its own. This was an immense intellectual leap. 
If God created the world, then it is, in principle, intelligible. The myths of irrationality have been dispelled. So science cannot survive when there's chaos and, and irrationality. It can only subsist in a world of order, a world where there's intelligence, where you can rationally now try to understand the way of the world. So we have paganism that where the belief in one God emerges in a time of paganism that allows now for scientific discovery to be a hope, a possibility, as opposed to an improbability, if not an impossibility. And even when it comes to now, there is a world that believes in oneness of God, being that Christianity, the whole focus is on an absurd faith. Scientific discovery, which is a rationality, is a contradiction inherently. Whereas in Judaism, it's not. Because we need to live in a world that does not dispel science. We can have a place for it. Now, that doesn't mean you should go run out and become a scientist, folks, you know, under certain conditions, maybe. Right. And science isn't replacing intelligent design. Not at all. Not at all. But under certain conditions, it's a worthy goal. Secular studies have value. And what's important from this is that it is compatible with Jewish life. As in this letter of the, of the Rebbe lists the ways of studying science is supported by Torah. And in some cases, scientific study is a mitzvah itself. Science, letter from the Rebbe. Science can be understood from within Torah study. An intelligent person can understand everything about building, about a building by looking at a blueprint. And the Torah is the blueprint of the world, as described in, in the Talmud. Through his Torah study, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania was able to determine the duration of a snake's pregnancy. So he didn't get it from studying the snakes, he got it from studying Torah. Likewise, likewise, as it states in the Medrash, Shmuel and Rabbi Hoshea were able to learn all about astronomy through their Torah study. There are cases where the Torah explicitly commands us to study secular topics. For example, the commandment to calculate the Jewish calendar. When a person is in a place where Torah study is forbidden, they are obliged to divert their mind to other kinds of wisdom, such as business like in a bathroom or, or, or taking a shower, right? Not allowed to think Torah then. Secular study is permitted when one lacks the secular knowledge required to properly understand their Torah study or to perform a mitzvah, like Rav, who apprenticed with a shepherd for 18 months. 
this kind of secular research is not considered Torah study, nor is it considered a mitzvah, but it is considered a preparatory step that facilitates Torah and mitzvahs. We'll get back to this. Academic proficiency to the degree necessary and no more for earning a living, or when one uses academics themselves as a profession, this is considered necessary means for a permissible end. Okay, so this is what the Rebbe writes. Let's elaborate on this. Let's un take this apart. The various things that the Rebbe mentions over here. He says there you can find science. The first point he mentions, you can find science where? In Torah. The first permissible instance to engage in science in the best place is from the Torah. Where do we do that ourselves recently? When we studied the laws of Kiddush HaKadosh, the laws of sanctifying the new moon, and Maimonides and Rambam. We learned it in Rambam. It was pure astronomy at some point. We didn't open up the books of astronomy. We learned it from Rambam. So that's one place where you can have the, the meeting of Torah and science come together. It's in Torah itself. <laughs> Another time, Torah requires scientific knowledge, right? Sometimes Torah itself requires that we have a hardcore understanding of scientific knowledge to calculate the months, to keep the festivals. So we learned it in Rambam, but Rambam and sages also learned it outside of Torah teachings, made it then part of it. So to understand the cycles of the sun and the moon and so on. When the new moon, when the seasons turn, as the Talmud tells us, that Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi said in the name of Bar Kapara, anyone who knows how to calculate astronomical seasons and movement of the constellations and does not do so, the verse says about him, they do not take notice of the work of God and they do not see his handiwork. Rabbi Shobar Nachmeni said, in the name of Rabbi Yechanan, from where it is, it is it derived that it's a mitzvah incumbent upon a person to calculate astronomical seasons and the movement of the constellations? Because it states in Deuteronomy, and you should guard and perform, uh, for it is your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the nations. Which wisdom and understanding is there in the Torah that is in the eyes of the nation? We must conclude that this is the calculation of astronomical seasons and movement of constellations. So, so sometimes you will find when we study purely Torah wisdom, something purely scientific, right? As, as I mentioned in Maimonides. So we learn it then as, right? So he says, Maimonides. And there's a difference of opinion among the sages of Israel concerning the length of the solar year. Some sages are of the opinion of, of Shmuel, maintain it's 365 days and a quarter day, six hours. Others are of the opinion of Ravada, maintain that it is slightly less than that figure, 365 days, a little less than a quarter of a day. There's also a difference of opinion among the wise men of Greece and Persia concerning this manner. So what we see over here is the sages you know, we're aware of the difference of opinions between the sages of Greece, the wise men of Persia, and so on. And from there, learning 
and understanding that, they were able to apply it and bring it into Torah teachings. So that's the second way. So we can, sometimes we, it necessitates that we no, need to know secular knowledge in order to help us to facilitate Torah teachings, right? Sometimes the, 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 that mundane knowledge can be found in Torah itself. The third point that the Rebbe mentions is engaging the mind when you can't study Torah, right? Now, every mo moment, our mind is thinking. Question is, what are you thinking? So the best thing is to think, you know, holy words at all times. Okay, sometimes you're not even allowed to, let alone have, do we have the power to do that. But sometimes you're in a bathhouse, you're in a bathroom. As it states in Jewish law, it is forbidden even to think words of Torah in a bathroom, bathhouse, or other unclean places, a place where excrement or urine is present. Right? Therefore, where, where Torah study is forbidden, one should make his business calculations so as to keep the mind occupied and avoid inappropriate thoughts. On Shabbos, when thinking about business forbidden, one should think about nice buildings or artwork and other matters that are allowed to on Shabbos. Interesting. So, you know, if you have a history book, an encyclopedia, or some other kind of academia in the bathroom, wonderful. So then you can use your mind for those areas, because then you can't think Torah. <laughs> I know, you know, the Torah works so great. That, you know, what we're learning now, when you're going, you're going to use the uh, a place where you're not allowed to think about Torah, now you're going to think about what we learned. <laughs> so that's the third area. There are times that it's inappropriate to think words of Torah. So, yeah, that's a good time to think, you know, other kind of mundane teachings that are productive. You know, it's interesting. Even in the bathroom, you can be productive. Right. The fourth idea is knowing science to know Jewish law. So we mentioned earlier, and brings uh, out Rav said the Talmud in the Talmud, I apprenticed with a shepherd for eighteen months to be able to know which blemish is a permanent blemish and which is a temporary blemish. The the laws of sacrifices, you know, what is considered a permanent blemish. Right. Therefore, you cannot bring that as a sacrifice in the holy temple or a temporary blemish, meaning something that's going to, you know, it's, a, it's going to heal itself. So this great sage spent a year and a half just in order to know the proper halacha in Jewish law. So today, for example, you might need to know electrical engineering in order to properly apply the laws of Shabbos. A microphone, what's a, an appropriate microphone? Can a microphone be used on Shabbos that is, you know, engineered in a certain way? Or you might need to know food science today. Why? For kosher. You know, a factory is making something. Well, maybe all of the ingredients are kosher, but maybe this one thing, oh. Or all the ingredients are kosher, but they made a run previously of things that were not kosher. So you need to know food science in order to have 
a proper kosher symbol put on a, uh, on food products in order to make it easier for us to keep kosher, right? Instead of having to um, make everything from scratch. Today, there are many rabbis who are extremely knowledge, knowledgeable in fertility, fertility medicine. Why? Because it's, it might be difficult, and there is difficulty for a woman to conceive. So we need to know those laws in order that we can help a husband and wife to have a family. So this technology is always advancing. Need to know these things in order to be able to help to fulfill mitzvahs. So that's the fourth idea. Knowing signs in order to be able to observe practical Jewish law. And then there is, you know, God, he created the world in six days, right? And rested on the seventh. Well, we also have to be created for six days and rest on the seventh day. In other words, we got to go to work. We need to be productive. We need to make a living. We need to contribute to society. We need to, of course, first and foremost, take care of our own family. Therefore, to pursue a secular education in order to have a livelihood, Torah allows. Right? Torah allows that. All right. So what we've seen over here is the instances where secular studies are often necessary components of Torah study and mitzvah observance. However, that being said, we said there are two worlds, right? And the two worlds can collide. Jewish world of observance of Torah and mitzvahs can collide with a secular world and human wisdom, wisdom of the sciences and the like. So in order that they don't collide, Torah is the ultimate and eternal wisdom that is unchanging and is carved in stone, so to speak. When we understand that, then secular studies can fit within that context. That's a very important thing. In other words, it's not two wisdoms on equal footing. And, you know, we can live with both. No, 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 no. Torah wisdom is eternal. Torah wisdom is unchanging. We see, we see that, you know, 200 years after uh, Tanya is written, you know, it's learned more than ever before. We didn't, you know, pick up a new book and say, oh, you know, we have new knowledge now. We have new awareness now. No, we still learn the Parsha every week. Right? The same Parsha. Again, again, and again. Why? Because it's eternal. 
Well, if you read one self-help book, not necessarily going to read it again, maybe. But maybe you're going to read a new one, you know, more improved. Because science is ever-changing and it's not eternal. So when science and secular studies are within the context of the eternity of Torah, then it's got a healthy place to, to live. Right, Because again, the most important thing that we have to consider is not our livelihood. That's not the most important thing. Is it important? Of course it's important. But the most important thing we need to consider is our relationship with God. Our life as a Jew, the Torah and mitzvahs. That's the most important thing. So we need to make sure that that integrity is always maintained. And anything that would be, you know, um, moving us away from that, we have to be careful of, right? So not only as Jews do we have to guard our actions, making sure that our deeds are appropriate, our speech is appropriate, but any undesirable influences, we also have to be very careful. That's what the mitzvah of tzitzes reminds us, right? That we shouldn't go after our um, that we shouldn't go after our eyes that lead us astray because of our heart's desire, right? Which which is important because we have to understand that science is just science, and what is science? The observation of nature, right? However, science within secular education is never raw science. It always has the influences of culture together with it. Oh, could you repeat that again, the first part? Science pure raw science is the uh, is observable facts of nature. However, education of secular education of science is never just that. It has subtle influences and agendas that are based on cultural influences. We're experiencing it right now with the pandemic and with the um, with, with, with the um, uh, with getting the vaccine, right? Some want to say it's pure science. Some want to say it's pure politics. <laughs> I think it's a mixture of both. There's agendas. There's um agendas there might be monetary agendas there's agendas cultural agendas there's agendas of political powers and so on and so forth it you know it's never pure it's hard for something to be pure science 
right? The point is that so science comes in a in you know in a form of uh, of an influence of culture. Um, we have to be careful; it's, it will influence us, right? It will influence us. And where is it going to influence mostly? Well, of course, it's going to influence us in our behavior, but actually there's something much more impactful or, or deeper or more profound that it will have an influence that we have to be careful of. And that is of the mind, because the mind is the deepest part of us. And that we have to have utmost care. In other words, what do I mean by that? When you're in the company of simple people, you know, and you talk about simple things like, you know, the weather, people, that's what most people do, right? Title chatter, it's mindless activity. So it's not good, we shouldn't do it. But far worse is that when you are speaking with someone with ideas, that those ideas might not be healthy ideas and they contaminate the mind. As the author Rebbe says in Tanya. Intellectual contamination is greater than contamination of vital speech for speech only impacts the emotions. It does not, however, contaminate the intellectual faculties of a person's soul for it's just words of foolishness and ignorance. Inasmuch as these are not intellectual matters, the intellect remains uninvolved and untainted. Not so in the case of various secular studies. Thereby, a person impacts and contaminates his divine soul's intellectual faculties. The exception is the one who employs these secular disciplines as a useful instrument, as a means of earning a more affluent livelihood with which to be able to serve God or unless he knows how to apply the secular disciplines in the service of God, or to his better understanding of Torah. This is the reason why Maimonides, Ahmadis of blessed memory, and their peers engage in such discipline. What do we have over here? Why is it crucial to be mindful when determining what sort of secular studies you're going to engage in? Because it's going to affect your mind. And from your mind, then it affects your heart. From your heart, it's going to affect what you think. And from your think, what you talk, what you engage in. Now, that, that's a deep, you know, our perspective, our mind, is um, in how we perceive and understand things. We have to be very careful. Now, with this, we can understand where the Tower of, 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 of Bovel Babel was frowned upon. Well, basically, it was humanity who um, uh, wasn't about so much what they were doing, why were they doing it? It's like, you know, have a juicy steak is not good or bad. You know, it, you're using it to celebrate Shabbos, oh, so celebrate it. If you're using it uh, and it's kosher and you make a bracha on it and you're using it to gain energy to, to learn, to do good, so it's, it becomes a positive thing, right? 
The same thing is when it comes, and even more so when it comes to um, science, right? Or physical phenomena or any wisdom of the world. Depends what its purpose is. If its purpose is to do good, to be more connected to God, then it's wonderful. But that was the problem with, um, with the Tower of Bubble. It was quite the opposite. They weren't trying to discover God. This is what the people really wanted to do. They wanted to establish civilization on the moon where they would be spared from future flood. They originally thought that they, that they, that they're by way of a vessel, but how would they lift the, that vessel and defy the law of gravity? So they thought of building a tower that would rise to the space so high that where gravity doesn't rule from where they would be able to fly away with their vessel to the moon. Hmm. What does that mean? So, so it wasn't about the technology itself that was the problem. It was about their attitude. They wanted to fly away from the gravity, so to speak. The gravity and, and the, the nuanced uh, double entendre over here. The gravity of the pull of God and the gravity of being under the rule of God. They wanted to replace God. So instead of trying to find discoveries and advancement in order to deepen their connection with God, they wanted to pull away from the gravity of his rule, from the gravity of his pull, the, gra the gravity or the gravity and, and gravity, <laughs> right? They, that there would be no force that would be upon them, that we would make a name for ourselves, that we don't need it to be connected to his name. That's a deeper meaning of what they wanted. So with modern science and technology, we need to keep this in mind. Are we trying to improve the world, make it more of a divine home for God, a place that, that is fitting in within the parameters of Torah teachings? Or is it to boost my ego? Is it about displacing God with my power, with my greatness? That is the question. And that becomes then what they didn't, what they failed in doing. And hence God disperses them that they shouldn't continue the project of trying to displace God that they can fly away from his presence. But no, use all your advancements to link it with God. And now with this, we can understand the Zohar and the explosion of modern day science and the teachings of modern day Torah teachings of Chassidus, that the two need to be able to work together. that science needs to bring us closer to God. And the more we understand science, the more it should lead us in that direction. 
Now, does that mean everybody who studies science today since 1840 became a believer? No. It doesn't take away freedom of choice. However, the more we, we engage in science today, the harder it is to not recognize the God particle, the God element, the unifying factor. It used to be that we thought the world was very divisive. All the you know, 103 elements when I was a kid, now we're reducing it to either energy or matter, or even you know beyond that. What we're trying to perceive is a a oneness. Well, E equals mc squared. Either it's energy or it's matter. They're interchangeable. One is you know one is uh, is is qualitative and one is quantitative. But really, it's all oneness. If you look at DNA, we see that in all of creation. We're starting to sense that more. So that explains popular opinion used to be that all natural forces exist independently from one another. And that matter of this world is comprised of many disparate elements. But as the world makes increasingly more scientific developments, we have come to recognize that much of the disparity is really only an external facade really do come together and the various parts contract and expand into each other, ultimately minimizing the sum total. So in conclusion, you know, what we're seeing is two things. One point is that we're seeing as an internet, what we're doing right now, right? Is that we're seeing each other, right? In other words, and not only that, we're able to, to teach and learn together. So what, you know, what scientific discovery has done has reduced the world into, in, into a global village that we can truly connect and that we have the capacity to use all of science to bring more teachings of Torah and values to the world than ever before, as we do here and we do every day with our tiny class. And that's one important point. So that science is a vehicle for something greater. But science is not just a vehicle for something greater. It itself is a, an embodiment of the oneness of God. And that's what the Zohar ultimately is coming to tell us, that the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, there's a, there's a, 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 a union that comes between them. So we can have a union that we can see the oneness of God when we learn Tanya, when we learn the Parsha, we get a sense of God's presence and the union and oneness of God. But today we can get that also from the waters that swell up from below, from secular knowledge. We can get that from scientific knowledge today. 
So the idea, you know, used to be that God, you know, as it says in the Mishnah, that um, we should contemplate um, that uh, three things that, and we won't come to do any sin, that God, that God has an eye that sees, an ear that hears, and the deeds are written, inscribed in a book. So that used to be a very vague kind of idea in the past. But today, you can see anybody in the world at any time. Right? All the way down to South America. <laughs> so we, we, we understand what it means. You could be thousands of miles away and, and still be seen. So we can understand how, you know, God sees us wherever we are. So meaning to say what, what, what the use, what science can do, what human uh, wisdom can bring to the, to the table today is um, teachings that will also bring us to an awareness of God and a connection to God. And many, not just in science, but just in even other human wisdom. People are coming around and recognizing. Now, listen, we still have freedom of choice. And you still have a great dispersion, you know, uh, you know of a, a great uh, a variance of, uh, of, um, of values. And, and you have extremes today that are completely the opposite of Torah, Jewish values. Absolutely. But at the same time, what we're seeing is that there's enough, there's a lot of wisdom out there that coincides perfectly with Torah teachings and wisdom. Now, again, to go back to the original point, and this is an important, uh, all of it has to fit in within the context of Torah teachings. So, for example, you know, um, you'll be able to find in, in um, you know, Man's Search for, for Meaning from Viktor Frankl, very important values and teachings there that um, are significant, very important. But that or any other teachings, you have to remember it has to be within the context of, you know, how Torah has its vision and its view on whatever issue and values and ethos in our lives. And then we can see that there's literally no contradiction. On the contrary, it just is proving today more than ever before on the values that from Torah. Any questions? Hi. Um, sorry, Joel, you wanted to ask something? No, I just said Lechaim uh, to you. Oh, oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I just want also to mention that the, the course today is absolutely. Uh, Amazing. It's really thank you. Wow. It's really great. Thank yeah. you, Rabbi. So I, I always try to 
find in, in different things, you know, um, teachings or whatever, you know, something that that coincides and, and fits into Torah teachings, you know, uh, quite often there is, it's the opposite, right? <laughs> A lot of the um, values in the teachings are the opposite, but there is today more than ever, because um, as the Zohar says, the teachings from heaven are pouring upon us, right? More people learning Tanya today than in the last 200 years. Thanks to internet, right? Really, more than ever. Um, there's more scientific discovery today that just so clearly demonstrates the oneness of God mm -hmm. than ever before. And it's beautiful. It is. So what we try to have an eye for is to see that in the world around us. Right? In other words, the vision we get from Torah of the oneness of Hashem and now try to understand how you know, the scientific discovery or other ideas from other teachings where there's a, an overlap, a similarity, also where there's a distinction, you know. I always try to see where the overlap, but at the same time, a distinction. Right? So, for example, like Viktor Frankl and the Rebbe would quote him often and even saved his career. Um, so, he would say that if you had a reason to live, you can endure almost anything. He was in the camps and he endured. And what get, it got him through and what he saw that others got through was because they were able to endure. Why were they able to endure? Because they had a sense of purpose. They had something, a purpose, a reason to live. Which is a very powerful idea. Coincides with Jewish teachings. We have a reason to live, to serve God. Right? And that's like, you know, not that's not a, a nine to five thing that is a constant thing that we're here to serve God so we have a constant reason to live but there's something deeper than even constant you know purpose what could be deeper than purpose anybody what's deeper than purpose Hmm? Meaning. Huh? Meaning. Well, that would be like purpose, though. <laughs> right? It's the same. Another word for purpose, meaning. I'm trying to think of other things, but no, that's I just stuck in that. Come on. Enjoy enjoyment. 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 Is that a purpose? No. No. Is that it? Oh, yeah. I mean, 
So look, you know, I, I have neighbors of mine I, I, that are not Jewish and I see how they're always improving their home. And, and I like that because I see productivity. They're being productive, which is great, right? So productivity is a value, right? We'd all agree. Greater than that, though, is purpose. Because productivity is being productive. That's not purpose, right? That doesn't necessarily mean it's purposeful, right? Greater than productivity is purpose. The, a reason to live, a meaning in life, right? So for a Jew, that meaning is the Torah mitzvahs, serving God, right? But something even deeper than that, and that's called identity. Mm -hmm. Identity, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. That's who and what I am. Purpose is what I do with my life. But then... What is my life? Who am I? Where am I? I'm a Jew. I'm a, because of being a Jew, then my, that, that shapes my purpose, gives a, a deeper sense of purpose, because the purpose is bound up with my identity, right? which is an identity that is greater than me. I mean, it is me, but in a sense, greater than me. And when I have that sense of purpose, then that will bring me to be ultimately a productive person. Right? Hmm. So some people all they have is productivity in their life. They produce, which is important because productivity brings um, improvement, it has value, but it's not within any framework of any purpose. And therefore, productivity can end up being. Nazism, being very productive and having the ultimate productive nation. How do you have the ultimate productive nation? How do you have that? Through eugenics, when you get rid of those who are non-productive, whether they're gypsies, whether they're people with uh, mental deficiencies, physical deficiencies, and of course, the Jew. Then that will allow you to have the most productive nation on earth, right? That will live, uh, will reign for a thousand years, a thousand year reign of the Third Reich. But that's without purpose, right? I mean, the purpose is, is to reign. <laughs> that's our, you know, I don't know if that's real purpose, perhaps. I, I guess you would call that purpose. But it's not a purpose beyond you. It's a purpose all about you. <laughs> right? So that's not real purpose. Real purpose is something that transcends you. 
So now comes um, Victor Frankl says, no purpose beyond you. Comes Judaism also has purpose beyond you, which is, you know, serving Hashem, something that's greater than you, transcends you, which is crucial, important. But it doesn't touch the core. Because it's purpose means your function. Come to Judaism and add something. There's something about you that's beyond function. And what is that? You're a Jew. You're a Jew. Now that you're a Jew, you can have a function of purpose beyond you to serve God. And that can be very productive. But it's all within the framework of who you are as a Jew. So the same thing with the science and everything, the productivity of science, because in the end, the productivity of science and human knowledge has to be within the framework of purpose that transcends you, right? Not to be a Nazi, but transcends you in a purpose of serving God. But ultimately that service of God is for all of humanity, really. And for the Jew, it adds another dimension of identity. That that purpose stems from who you are, not what you do. That's unique to the Jewish experience. Who are you? You're a Jew. Oh, that Jew means that your frame of reference is Torah mitzvahs. And therefore, your function becomes and your purpose is the service of God through Torah mitzvahs. And then you could be very productive, extremely productive in any area in your life, which we find that the sages of the Jewish people were the most productive, the greatest of geniuses and knowledgeable individuals, but it didn't start with the productivity end of it, you know, which is the knowledge base. It didn't even start with the service that it's to serve something higher. It starts with a sense of who you are. Is that clear? Mm-hmm. All right, folks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi. All the best. Yeah. Thank you.